The Best of Our Knowledge explores topics on learning, education, and research. Coming up, following the resignation of former President Claudine Gay, Harvard University is at the center of the debate over free speech on college campuses. We'll speak with a member of a faculty organization defending the rights of students to protest violence against Palestinians. And we'll speak with the supervisor of the Onondaga Nation Farm. I'm Lucas Willard, host of The Best of Our Knowledge. You're listening to The Best of Our Knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. Since the attacks by Hamas militants on Israel in October and the full military response by the Israeli government, tensions have flared at colleges and universities and reignited the debate over free speech. A month after a December congressional hearing on anti-Semitism on college campuses, backlash over then-Harvard University President Claudine Gay's responses to questions from Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik led to her resignation. Elizabeth McGill, the former president of the University of Pennsylvania, who was questioned with Gay and the president of MIT, also resigned. For her part, Stefanik, a Harvard alum who was eyed as a potential pick for vice president by Donald Trump, called Gay's testimony pathetic. But as the Israel-Hamas war drags on, with more than 25,000 Palestinian civilians dead and the United Nations International Court of Justice in January calling on Israel to protect Palestinians from genocide, Students and young people across the country continue their demands for a ceasefire. In Cambridge, a group of professors are calling themselves the Harvard Faculty and Staff for Justice in Palestine, with a mission to support the rights and safety of students. Faculty member Dr. Lara Germanis says Gay's resignation led to a cooling of student expression and demonstration on campus. She's also critical of efforts by right-wing politicians and deep-pocketed donors to stymie free speech. Dr. Germana spoke with the best of our knowledges, Jody Cowan. Our universities are essential to open discourse on campus and actually to our American democracy. You need spaces to be able to discuss the pressing issues of our time, and, and our universities are part and parcel of that. We need to be able to have open conversations about difficult issues. We need to be able to respectfully dig into hard to consider topics and be able to disagree and think critically. And, um, you know, sometimes that might lead people to draw conclusions that are contrary to the official positions of our elected leaders. And I think in particular, one thing that really, you know, this is drawn out is that at this point, two out of three U.S. voters have supported ceasefire in Gaza since October 20th. Instead of following the electorate, Biden and Congress have been pursuing an inhumane foreign policy, which is summarily risking the lives of 2.2 million Palestinians, right? We have the U.N. warning us that if nothing is done, 2.2 million Palestinian civilians in Gaza face imminent famine. And so why are we punishing our students for speaking out for the will of the majority of this nation when they are simply articulating the very same 
extreme reservations about U.S. tax dollars financing Israel's collective punishment of Palestinians? Why are we silencing the speech of those students that are sharing, simply sharing, mainstream opinions? That stifles urgent dialogue around U.S. actions that are simply trying to hold our U.S. elected officials accountable, and it threatens democracy. Recently there on campus at Harvard, there was the forming of the Harvard faculty and staff for justice in Palestine. I think you maybe kind of touched on this a little bit here, but why was this group formed? And um, can you highlight the recent statement that was just released, which I know you signed in support? The first and foremost objective in the statement is for us to support the students. Uh, We're here to stand behind their efforts in trying to highlight the ways that the state of Israel is and has been for over 75 years uh, forcibly evicting and um, dispossessing Palestinians from their land and uh, and also the violence of the current genocide in Gaza. Um, and I think we're mainly focused on the students because in recent months, our students have been terrorized and harassed by doxing campaigns. We've seen Palestinian students from neighboring college shot on the street in Vermont. And most recently, students at Columbia were targeted with a chemical weapon while peacefully protesting. And so we're essentially here to ask for something very basic, protect students, protect human rights, protect international law, and treat Palestinians like humans. Um, And we're asking also for our universities to speak up when they see universities and our, our own colleagues in Gaza also targeted. We've seen professors, scholars, doctors targeted by Israel's military campaign against unarmed civilians in Gaza. On campus, who really has the most influence to affect these changes and whose kind of responsibility is it to ultimately step up to protect students? I think you've really highlighted an important question. At Harvard, all of the power or almost all of the power rests in the hands of the Harvard Corporation. And that is a board of an unelected board of 12 individuals, most of whom come from a corporate background um, and don't have connection with higher education. Um, or, you know, really um, are not really accountable to the people at Harvard that make the institution run, the faculty, the students, the workers. Uh, And so I think really the crux of this comes down to the urgency of a campaign for democratic governance of the university. I think we all need to be asking ourselves, why do these billionaire donors have more say about what happens at our universities than the people that make it up? We saw in the wake of the congressional hearings, a substantial group of the professorship of Harvard University, over 700 professors sign a letter saying no outside influence, we support our president. And, um, you know, and then a, a slew also afterwards of editorials coming out with people saying, you know, let's not rush to rash decisions here. Harvard University is is older than the U.S. itself. And by their very nature, academic endeavors are thoughtful. Uh, they take time. They're done in a measured way, which weighs pros and cons and investigates. And um, and so we really need a process also where the university is accountable to the voices of the people that make it up. 
In response to recent events at Harvard, the current president has established two differing task forces assigned to combat both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and anti-Arab attacks on campus. Do you think this is a wise course of action as far as having two separate task forces to deal with threats to students? While I really do appreciate that they have taken steps to combat anti-Semitism and Islamophobia at Harvard, we in the Harvard faculty and staff for Justice in Palestine have been questioning why the work of protecting students should be separated into two committees. As institutions of higher education, we should aim to protect all our students. Protecting the rights of Muslim and Jewish students is not a zero-sum game. In fact, a diverse coalition of students and faculty have been targeted for speaking out for Palestinian rights, including Jewish students, Black, White, Latinx, Asian, and Indigenous members of the Harvard community. So it's it's really not Muslim versus Jewish. This isn't an, a religious issue at all. And trying to kind of pin one group versus the other is really not the way to go here. Uh, similarly, what we're seeing is that Israel's extreme right-wing government at this moment, you know, Netanyahu has said, I would, we want to have uh, Israel, an Israeli state that has complete control from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, um, and, and basically has declared a future without any guarantee of rights or sovereignty for Palestinians. What's the campus's response to that? What's the university's response to that? Is there a future for Palestinians in Gaza? <laughs> Um, or in any of the land that, um, you know, they are indigenous to, our campus should create space for students and faculty to respectfully debate and envision possibilities for a just future. And that just future should include equal rights and sovereignty for Palestinians and Israelis. In standing up for and supporting both students on campus and the greater Palestinian population, do you feel that your position is at risk uh, as a teacher, as a community member? Absolutely. Uh, you know, my colleagues have been doxxed. Some of them have received really um, frightening death threats. Um, people have been sued. Um, there's actually a single law firm, which is on a systematic campaign to sue um, professors at all of the top universities in the country, um, just for speaking out against the violations of Palestinian human rights and the victimization of the people of Gaza. Um, people are constantly harassed, um, you know, and there's actually a lot of money um, and campaigns uh, orchestrated by organizations like Canary Mission to uh, find out which are the academics that are even teaching about Palestine and then to harass them to have students, you know, go show up to one class and then demand that they remove books from their syllabus. Um, you know, so so there are orchestrated attacks going out, um, going on against faculty um, and students who speak up simply against injustices to Palestinians. Uh, so yes, we are all at risk. And I think at this point, a number of us have, have said, well, given the degree of the gravity of um, the current humanitarian disaster that we are paying for as American taxpayers in Gaza, in spite of the personal and professional risks, we have to speak up. Dr. Laura Germanis is a member of Harvard faculty and staff for Justice in Palestine. She spoke with the best of our knowledges, Jody Cowan.
This is the best of our knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. Located south of the city of Syracuse, New York, the Onondaga Nation is a member of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. The ancestral home of the Onondaga people, the land is also home to the Onondaga Nation Farm, a farm that serves as an educational, cultural, and nutritional resource. Angela Ferguson of the Eel Clan is supervisor of the Onondaga Nation Farm. I spoke with her about the farm and its agricultural traditions. The Onondaga Nation itself is located uh, in central New York, about maybe 16 miles south of Syracuse. And um, the Onondaga Nation Farm uh, originally had started out as a garden for the elders. And when I first uh, began there, way back when, I had worked for um, one of our chiefs who was no longer with us in that elders garden. And uh, in 2015, um, we decided to put together an entire food sovereignty program for the whole community. And so um, our council of chiefs and clan mothers here uh, approved that endeavor. And so ever since then, we've been using our traditional growing practices to perform all aspects of food sovereignty for our community. So when the Onondaga Nation Farm began... Was there a focus on pre-colonial foods, or is that something that developed over time? Yes, we've always had our uh, three sisters grown by many of our community members, and our three sisters are the corn, beans, and the squash. And um, the farm grows not only for the elders, but for the entire community, and also to put food away for the future. So um, in case there's ever... For example, like this global pandemic we just went through, we had plenty of food put away for our people. So um, we've always grown our traditional foods, but we also grow um, things like healthy and what I call superfoods. What are some of the superfoods that you're referring to? Well, um, a good example of that would be uh, during the pandemic, we started what we call a COVID garden. So every food in there wasn't a food that promotes your immune system to, uh, they have antiviral properties to promote uh, the ability for your body to help uh, fight off sickness. So we had things like radishes and beets and kales and spinach and um, things that were very potent that had a lot of um, vitamins in there. So um, it's kind of like a healthy, healthy food garden where you don't have to eat as much and you get um, a lot of vitamins through that. So that supplements our three sisters. How has the farm grown over the years, and has it actually physically increased in size and output? Oh, yes. Um, Originally, we started out with just five women because everything we do, we do by hand. So, um, you know, we're planting, we're uh, working the soil by hand, we're pulling weeds, and we're harvesting and doing everything um, using just our physical labor. And we started out with just five women, and we used to do maybe five acres because each person can manage about an acre by hand. And now we have 15 women normally that will be doing the traditional agriculture. And we have um, 10 men that were added on later uh, to do the hunting and fishing. So we also included traditional wild game, foraging and different things like that. And then we have five people uh, who sit with our seeds and our food storage on the weekends and and the time that we're not there at the garden. Now, I saw that 
you also hold the title as being a seed keeper. Are there varieties or heirlooms of seeds on the Onondaga Nation farm that don't exist maybe in your local supermarket? Oh, yes. We have over uh, 4,000 varieties of indigenous corn. And, you know, we have maybe a little over 1,000 varieties of beans. And, you know, we have hundreds of varieties of squash. So the seed preservation is really um, a big passion of mine. And it gets me real excited because I just love the the hope that lies in all of those seeds and, and knowing that we can carry that forward for all of our grandchildren and future generations. I think that uh, people who buy their food at the supermarket every day see one kind of corn. They see sweet corn, right? They, if, at squash, they might see an acorn squash and a butternut squash and summer squash in, in the summertime. But uh, there's a lot more to it than that. Yes, there's um, just like there's different races and colors of human beings. It's the same way with the corn. You know, there's different varieties of the white and the red and the yellow and the black. And so each one of those foods is designed for a different part of your body. And when you consume those different colors, I call it like a medicine wheel plate, and you're using those different varieties and colors of corn, um, you're providing nutrients to different parts of your body. And so there's a lot to our, um, you know, our Haudenosaunee tradition of nutrition and well-being, as well as ceremony. So a lot of those foods go along with certain ceremonies. And, um, you know, it's a lot of diligent work to make sure they're not cross-pollinated and that they stay um, in their heirloom state. So it takes a lot of um, training and knowledge to show people how you can plant corn next to each other and using natural barriers and things like that so that you're not mixing the varieties to keep their integrity of their original form. Has a warming climate made farming more difficult or keeping traditional or heirloom varieties of fruits and vegetables? Has climate change presented a challenge to that? Yes, absolutely. Um, You know, some years are a little better than others, but our planting season has um, moved almost a month behind where we used to normally uh, plant in May. A lot of the times Um, or even late April, now we cannot do that. We can only um, plant in late May, early June, and we've even planted corn in July. And uh, when would you normally plant corn, I guess? What was the traditional window for planting corn? Well, we don't really go by the the calendar, per se. What we do are we look for signs in nature. That's our guide, and we follow the moon. So we plant by the moon, the position of the moon and the time of the moon. But even that has changed a little bit. So that's that's pushed it back. And sometimes even when the moon tells us, okay, we got to get out there and plant, um, the soil is not warm enough to sustain seeds. Um, sometimes it even snows here in May, which, you know, when I was growing up as a child, I never saw that. So things are just a lot more unusual and unpredictable from when you were younger. Yes, yes. And then that pushes the harvesting time back. So I've been, even this year, in in 2023, this past harvest, I was still picking corn in December. Some of it wasn't ready, which is definitely not normal. That usually occurs in October. This is 
a somewhat of an unusual winter in an El Nino year here going into 2024. Um, in the Northeast, there's been a lot of warm days, a lot of rain. Uh, has that had an impact on maple sugar production and, and sap actually flowing from the trees? Has it been unusual there too? Well, we haven't started our um, maple tapping for this year yet. Um, we're again waiting for the signs from nature, but it's going to be very interesting to see because um, I've traveled around to different um, areas in the, in the U.S. here, what we call Turtle Island, and some of the trees actually were budding because it got so warm that it tricked the trees into thinking spring is here. You know, um, we had a very mild December here, so we don't know what the uh, ultimate impact is going to be until the end of our maple season. But, um, you know, what happens is there has to be warm temperatures in the daytime, warm enough for the sap to flow, and then it has to be freezing at nighttime. So when it's 40 to 50 degrees day and night, I'm not really sure because we have never seen um, these kind of warm temperatures in this area here of New York. So I know all of the maple um, producers are concerned about this. And when it comes to our Onondaga Nation farm practices, we like to do what I call climate cooperation. So we look for the signs from nature. And if we have to make adjustments to cooperate with what's happening, that's kind of how we do. We, we adapt and we come up with different ways to um, still be able to produce the amount of food that our community needs. But we try to cooperate with it. So if we have to plant later and pick corn in December, then we do, you know. We've talked about how the Onondaga Nation farm has grown over the years, but what opportunities do you see for it moving forward? And uh, are you looking to work with uh, school groups or other educational institutions to get more people involved? Absolutely. Um, we do a lot of um, presentations and hands-on activities with kids from all ages, even starting at uh, elementary level, preschool level all the way to university level. So yeah, we're, we've been trying to encourage the school campuses to have Three Sisters Gardens on campus so that both the young children, the high school students and college students have sanctuary and space to have um, a place that they can call their own and grow food and share cultural uh, experiences with um, people from all walks of life, you know, especially on the university level. And then it encourages them, we get it started, and then it becomes a student-led project where the students carry the work forward and we provide seeds or teach them how to save their seeds out of those gardens. And it's been very um, wonderful because it's grown to lead us back to traditional cooking methods. Because you can cook all, you know, you can grow all kinds of great healthy food, but if someone doesn't know how to prepare it, there's no value to it if you can't actually turn that into something um that they know how to prepare for their families or themselves. So we do um, a lot of uh, cooking outdoors over open fire, showing people how to make fire using hot rocks and wooden troughs and clay pots and teaching. And then that leads you back into another activity, which where do you get the clay to learn how to make clay pots and what kind of rocks do you select when you're cooking with them and different things like that, you know? So, um, it's grown there 
And then with the hunting and fishing, it's really expanded an opportunity for some of our young boys to learn from the very knowledgeable men in our community that know how to, you know, be out in the woods and, and have safe and, um, you know, spiritually relevant hunting practices. And so that we're not over extracting and that we're um, utilizing all that food from the forest in a healthy way. So it's, it's really grown and um, seeds just keep showing up from many, many people have, you know, brought their seeds because they want their seeds to be held in a safe space with us. So um, the seed preservation has really grown and the hunting and fishing aspect of it really gets us to, okay, now how do we use all these parts, right? So we can use the bones for tool making. We can make our own leather use, I, you know, I give workshops on how to make um, leather out of the deer hides and the buffalo hides and the elk hides and things like that. So a lot of people really like doing that now, you know, so every part is used. What do you hope to inspire in young people, older people? Um, what's really at the core of it for you? For me, um, the core of it is that I want to see my people both spiritually, mentally, and physically healthy. And, you know, it, it's not just um, Indigenous people who are suffering from a lot of health disparities. That was my original motivation, is to getting our minds back to wellness, practicing our culture through our um, agriculture, and just making sure that people are, are healthy again, because diabetes is a, a huge problem for us, along with other food-related illnesses. And I think uh, a lot of people can speak to that, because we all have people in our family who have suffered from some of those things. So just getting people back in the garden, getting connected to the land, that's the most important thing. And giving thanks. Everything that we do, we give thanks for. So every practice from planting when we sing to our seeds to pulling weeds and to harvesting, it's all communal work. So it keeps you connected to the people from your community. And it also keeps you connected to the land. So that's really one of the most important things um, that I want to see. And also, I like to honor the work of my ancestors. They did all that work so that they, they someone seven generations ago thought of us today, and it's our duty to think that same way forward. Angela Ferguson is supervisor of the Onondaga Nation Farm. This has been The Best of Our Knowledge, episode 1741. The Best of Our Knowledge is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Thanks to associate producer Jody Cowan, the latest on all national productions programs is available via the Airwaves newsletter and our flagship station's website, wamc.org. Until next time, I'm Lucas Willard. <laughs>